Today we continue in the book of Hebrews. The basic message of this book is that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. And he is the greatest high priest to have ever entered into the Holy of Holies. That's what we talked about last week, the the high priesthood of Jesus. And we're going to continue talking about the high priesthood of Jesus for the next eight weeks. At the very end of our passage last week, we were told that Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. However, we didn't get into what that means. And today, we still won't. Not until chapter 7. You see, it's, it's clear that, that the author of Hebrews considers the high priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek to be a really big deal. But he's hesitant to launch into a discussion of it. As it says in chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say. About the high priesthood of Jesus, we have much to say. About the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say. However, it is hard to explain why. Because, he says, you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, the the high priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek is the theological equivalent of solid food. It's rich, and complex both in texture and in flavor. It is for the highly discriminating palate. But the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written did not have discriminating palates. They were still milk drinkers. They were spiritual infants. And so this is, to be sure, this is a strongly worded challenge. But if you think about it, it, it's a pretty effective way to provoke your audience. It's a pretty effective way to to elicit and to capture their attention. It's like when someone says, oh, I thought of something really cool. I'll tell you later. Or I'll tell you when you're older, even worse. It's an effective way to prepare them for chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, perhaps you've, you've heard it said, we, we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. That's true. But it's only true if we also recognize that the gospel is simultaneously simple and infinitely complex. It's only true if we recognize that the gospel does not permit us to remain spiritual infants. The gospel can be grasped by young children, and the gospel can be studied and explored and meditated upon for decades 
without really scratching the surface of its beauty and complexity. Verse 1 uses the metaphor of a foundation. The foundational teachings of our faith ought to never be abandoned. But something has gone horribly wrong if we have to keep reasserting and redefending those foundational teachings because the purpose of a foundation is to build on it, right? And it's very interesting, possibly a bit humbling, to see what the author of Hebrews considers foundational. Repentance from dead works, that, that means works that lead to death. Faith and faithfulness toward God. Instruction about washings or baptisms. Instruction about the laying on of hands. Instruction about the resurrection of the dead. Instruction about eternal judgment. According to Hebrews, this list represents the ABCs of the Christian life, of the Christian faith. Or, or perhaps I should say the, the ABCs of first century Jewish Christianity. Now, why do I say that? Each of these foundational doctrines had roots within Judaism, but had come to take on new meaning with the coming of Jesus. And so they would have been especially relevant to this predominantly Jewish group of Christians. As for us, we are obviously far removed from the first century context within which these references would have made a lot more sense to us. But nonetheless, we are, we are right. We are right to be challenged by this list. We are right to look at this list and say to ourselves, my foundation needs some work. I have some growing up to do if I'm going to chew on what Hebrews considers solid food. Let me share a quote from N.T. Wright. He says, Why is it in the 21st century, as in the first, that so many Christians are not only eager to stay with a diet of milk, but actually get irritated at the suggestion that they should be eating something more substantial? This is a question that has puzzled and bothered me for years. In my own country, I meet a settled prejudice, even among people who are highly intelligent in other areas, who work in demanding professions, who read serious newspapers and magazines, and who would be ashamed not to know what was going on in the world, against making any effort at all to learn what the Christian faith is about. As a result, we find, both inside the churches and outside, an extraordinary ignorance of who Jesus really was, what Christians have believed and should believe about God and the world, how the entire Christian story makes sense, what the Bible contains, and not least, how individual Christians fit in and how their lives and their thoughts should be transformed by the power of the gospel. There are many places in the world where there is a great hunger to know all these things and an eagerness to grasp and take in as much teaching as one can. Some Christians are indeed eager and ready for solid food, but I deeply regret that in many churches, in the West at least, it seems that the most people can be persuaded to take on board is another small helping of warm milk. We are told that, that to need milk is to be unskilled in the word of righteousness. But 
but the word righteousness there is actually the word for justice. To need milk is to be unskilled in the word of justice. In other words, to grow up, to, to move on to solid food, is to develop a thorough understanding of the totality of God's justice. To be skilled in the word of justice is to know our way around the gospel to such a degree that, that we understand how it changes our own lives, but also how it changes our community and the wider world. God's justice is God's vision for the growing good of the world, for making everything right again. It's his, that's his vision. That's God's justice, making everything right again. And becoming skilled in this word of justice is a lot of work. I'm, I'm challenged by this too. But I, I do think I've, I've tasted enough solid food to say with confidence that to mature in this way is a highly rewarding thing. To mature in this way is well worth the effort. It would be very difficult to overstate the, the power of knowing your place, truly knowing your place within the story that God is telling with the world. Now, this is... To be clear, this is not a call to to pull yourself up by your theological bootstraps or to study your Bible all by yourself until you understand it. This is a call to be discipled. And and trust me, if you you come to one of us, if you come to one of your pastors and you say, "I I want more, I want to go deeper, there is no conversation that we would rather have. Lord willing, in the coming years, we will continue growing into a church community that's well-equipped to navigate the complexity of living godly lives within a world that, that really does care very little for God's idea of justice. So let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Or in other words, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and let's talk about the high priesthood of Jesus after the the order of Melchizedek. For it is impossible, well, I should say, verses four through eight have been highly contested and debated for centuries now, okay? Verses four through eight. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right, first of all, let's, let's recognize what sort of people the author of Hebrews is talking about here. They have been enlightened, They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, these are Christians. Even so, we need to resist the urge to individualize these verses. It's true that that we as individuals, each of us as an individual Christian, must persevere in clinging to Jesus. 
But, but I don't think the author of Hebrews is necessarily talking about the experience of individual Christians. I, I think this is an exhortation addressed to Jewish Christians in particular, and to a certain degree, it's specific to a first century context. Remember, a, a, a few weeks ago, we talked about how this first century generation of Jesus followers could be compared to the wilderness generation of Moses followers. For both generations, the call was to enter into God's rest, and the, the looming question or the threat was, was whether or not they would return back to Egypt. So, so the question is, do you press on into the land of promise or do you return to Egypt? And so the author of Hebrews is saying to these first century Jewish Christians, you have been enlightened. You have tasted the heavenly gift. You have shared in the Holy Spirit. You have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, you have escaped from Egypt. You have passed through the Red Sea. You have witnessed the Egyptian army being swept away. You have been miraculously fed in the wilderness. You have received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Therefore, don't turn back. If you reject your Messiah, you will not get another one. The people of God rejected Jesus the first time, and he was crucified. For the people of God to reject Jesus a second time would be to crucify him again. So they could either follow Jesus into the land of promise or they could abandon Jesus and, so to speak, go back to Egypt. But for those who go back, make no mistake, there will be no second exodus. Verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Again, this is addressed to first century Jewish Christians, but it applies to us all the same. We have been enlightened. We have tasted the heavenly gift. We have shared in the Holy Spirit. We have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. We have been rained upon. God has rained his grace upon us. And so it's incumbent upon us to bear fruit, to produce a useful crop to take what the Lord has given us, to, to take the grace that he has poured out upon us and to be faithful with it and to mature. The Lord has rained his blessing upon us. Will we bear a useful crop or will we bear thorns and thistles? What sort of land are we? Well, the author of Hebrews is confident that his audience will persevere and produce a useful crop. And I am confident that the same is true of us. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, though we challenge you, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't miss that word, beloved, there. This is a strongly worded challenge, but it has, it has originated within the heart of a pastor who truly desires to shepherd his flock into a place of safety and health and flourishing. He sees clearly the danger that they are facing, but he can also see clearly the signs of grace and faithfulness at work among them. God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So stick with it, he says. Don't turn back now. Show the same earnestness. Have the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't be sluggish. Don't settle for the elementary doctrines. Move on to maturity. Build upon your foundation. Learn to eat solid food. God has seen your past faithfulness and he is inviting you now to take that next faithful step, that next faithful step on to maturity. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have been, you have been so good to us. By your grace, we have been enlightened. We have tasted the heavenly gift. We have shared in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we want to follow you into the kingdom, into the land of promise, on to maturity. Holy Spirit, fill us, grow us up, mature us, and through us, bear a useful crop. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.